Welcome to Double Truck Stories, the home to some of the best features, investigations, and character portraits from across ESPN. I'm Mike Philbrick, your host for the Double Truck Stories podcast. Remember to subscribe to Double Truck Stories podcast on the ESPN app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Even in the carefully crafted arena of professional wrestling, there can be a fine line between conflict and empowerment. And that's especially true when the match you're about to see in the ring is not just character versus character, but man versus woman. While to many, this may appear to be a glorification of violence against a weaker opponent, there are many who are part of a growing audience who say it's actually just the opposite. Stick around after the story for my conversation with ESPN staff writer Hallie Grossman as we talk about how some women are achieving equal opportunities, one body slam at a time. Now we present Equal Fights Movement by Hallie Grossman. In the middle of the night, at a quarter till two, the audience fends off exhaustion and cold. The main ballroom in the Pontchartrain Center is cavernous, and as the thermostat dips into the low 60s, the men and women, mostly men, and children, two of them, lean forward, waiting for the show to go on. The venue is set up to house 2,500 people, but just 300 tickets have been sold. In the end, only about 170 fans have shown, so the faction that's here feels sparse, the event a little clandestine. There's a bald man sitting ringside in a black shirt with bold white letters that blare, politically incorrect, and damn proud of it. A group of seven friends who look to be in their mid-twenties sit clustered together, eight rows up in the bleachers, a sea of vacant blue seats in front of them. The room is mostly dark, save for the ring in the center illuminated by spotlight. There are no windows to the outside world here, and even if there were, the vista beyond to Kenner, Louisiana, wouldn't offer much. An expanse of green fields. A smattering of shade trees in the distance. Downtown New Orleans is nearly 15 miles away, but with those fields and those trees blanketed in a velvety night, the city feels farther. This might as well be the ends of the earth. Inside, as 2 a.m. draws near, the music picks up, a rhythmic pounding that crescendos in sync with strobing lights. It's a neon pink and green and yellow rave-like affair, and it's through a colorful cloud of smoke that Kimberly, royalty in the independent wrestling circuit, emerges. She's here at a homecoming of sorts. Returning to the Indies after more than a year away in the WWE ranks to face hot sauce Tracy Williams at Lit Up. The show, hosted by Beyond Wrestling, is the promotion's first card featuring just men versus women, intergender matches from the opening bout until the final bell. Kimberly runs the perimeter of the guardrails, reaching out to fans pushed up against the metal gates. She leaps over the turnbuckle and raises her arms, her sequin jacket and purple and black bedazzled bikini set glinting in the spotlight. Welcome back, Chance Breakout. And when she squares off with Williams, a svelte 192-pound man in minuscule black trunks, the fans are unmistakably in her corner. For five minutes, they grapple and slam each other into the canvas and trade kicks and expel grunts. Then Kimberly climbs the top rope, launches herself through the air, and slams her feet into the chest of a staggering Williams, sending him flying upon impact. Williams retaliates, picking up Kimberly and flinging her over his shoulder before spiking her to the ground. Death Valley Driver, the announcer hollers. Seconds later, Williams clutches Kimberly in a headlock, and the two wind up tangled, head-to-head, shoulder-to-shoulder. Kimberly punches Williams on his side once, twice, a third time. After the fourth swing, a convincingly desperate heave to get him to loosen his grip, Williams stands straight, keeps Kimberly bent forward, and winds his right arm back like he's wielding a hammer. He lets swing in his palm, wide open, collides with flesh. You hear the slap, the smack of broken skin, almost before you see it. And then you do see it. You can't not see it. Between Kimberly's shoulder blades, just below her tattoo of a rose and bloom, blooms something new, a throbbing bright red handprint. 
Physical ruin is a part of this job description, and for the remaining weekend after Lit Up, Tracy Williams' open palm strike, the evidence of a man physically beating up a woman while an accepting crowd looked on, will burn a deep crimson on Kimberly's back. Depending on your vantage point, that handprint is either a token of honor, and perhaps progress, or a radioactive badge of shame, nothing but spectacled master's progress. Their match concludes after Williams locks his forearm around Kimberly's neck and yanks backward to submit her via crossface. He keeps his belt, then gets booed for his efforts. A vanquished Kimberly staggers around the mat, raises her arms to salute the Kimberly chants, then ducks beneath the ropes to leave the ring. She hobbles along the path to the exit, clutches her jaw, and steps through the thick black curtain that divides the public from backstage. And there, on the other side, she stands up straight. Kimberly, who goes by Kimberly Frankly when not in the ring, finds Williams, and like wrestlers do after every match, they huddle. They assure each other that yes, they're both unharmed. Yes, they both feel good about how the match went. And then Williams explains himself and that backslap. It was there, he tells Frankly. Her back was exposed. He seized an opportunity. I'm sorry. Frankly waves him off, assuring Williams that she would have done the same. It's their job as performers to leave safe spots open, their chest, their back, where opponents can deliver strikes carefully. You're going to bruise, says Frankly, of her chosen trade. You're going to get hurt. She laughs because really she's been at this since 2009 and it's just one more bruise in a decade replete with them. And besides, she knows Williams. They both trained under the same mentor. They know the lines they can and cannot cross with each other. He wasn't supposed to hit me in the back like that, frankly says, then shrugs. But that happens. That's a move that's not fake. Spend enough time backstage and the kind of governance emerges. Everyone is on top of everyone back here and between the embraces and the pleasantries, it feels closer to a high school reunion than a space where they're prepping to batter one another. There's the women's dressing room, where an array of carry-on suitcases are splayed open. Pro wrestling is not a crime, trumpets a sticker on one black bag. The wrestlers' makeup, their costumes, and their snacks spill out onto a faux granite countertop. There's the men's dressing room just across the way, and there's the hallway. In this sterile, narrow corridor that stretches the length of the convention center, the wrestlers conduct their pre- and post-mortems. Before their matches, they hammer out the storyline and moves they agree they want to execute. Afterward, they dissect how those storylines and moves played out. They are forensic analysts in like run sequence. Walk through the hall in those final harried minutes before Lit Up begins, and you'll find them convening, two by two, wrestler versus wrestler, like Noah's Ark. Frankly and Williams practice their steps, knowing their story arc is a simple one. Williams owns the title belt. Frankly will try to wrest it from him. Boom, Frankly yells, then pretends to whip her head back. She mimics a series of punches. Williams pretends to sustain the blows. Boom, William says, and frankly pretends staggers for a few steps. Down the corridor, about 20 feet away, another pair of performers, Deanna Perrazzo and Matt Riddle, go through their own paces. Neither has performed in an intergender match before tonight, and they decide their action will lean into that experience. Perrazzo will be the early aggressor, needling Riddle to fight. Riddle, the former UFC fighter, will be hesitant at first, knowing the power imbalance until she frustrates him so much he swings back and outmuscles her. Maybe it's like this, Riddle motions and practices kneeing Perrazzo with his right leg. She nods and pretend lurches a few steps. It's like a live-action movie, frankly says. We're stunt athletes. Ask any intergender wrestler why he or she feels comfortable with the performances they're putting out in the world, why they don't balk at a man and a woman wreaking violence on one another, and they'll inevitably land here. Women will question the logic of being able to train and practice with men wrestlers but not actually face them in a match. They'll love the empowerment they feel or the equality they seek to promote. Kimberly's catchphrase of choice is that she's the princess who will save herself. Kimberly's catchphrase of choice is that she's the princess who will save herself. But the heart of Frankly's argument is that she's just playing Kimberly. 
frankly, has seen the script and signed off on it. And afterwards, she'll even provide notes on the execution of that script. And so why wouldn't she feel comfortable? Why wouldn't she take up the intergender mandal? Wrestling is not fake. I hate that word, she says. Yes, the winner is preordained and the athleticism is choreographed, but it's still athleticism. The moves are real. The bruises I have are real. I'm really landing on the concrete, but we're telling a story. To a wrestler, they maintain this point. Frankly's trainer, Drew Gulak, calls professional wrestling the craziest form of acting. Joey Ryan, another wrestler in Lit Up's all-intergender card, deems it performance art. Everybody's in on it, he says. Everybody knows. And to those who would scream a woman could never beat a man, it's a moot point, these wrestlers insist. For one, they fashion their storylines to make room for that reality. The size and strength imbalances might exist. Midway through their match at Lit Up, Williams throws Kimberly to the floor. She lands in a split, then wags her finger in rebuttal. Her point? Flexibility can counter brute power. For another, there's a transaction with the audience, wrestlers say. Even if it's an unspoken contract, the audience knows what this is and accepts it as such. They're in on the act. The fans walk through the doors of the Pontrachine Center and suspend their disbelief to take in a performance, like a Broadway show, or a blockbuster movie, or any work of fiction. In this work of fiction, one man faces one woman. They've learned their lines. They've practiced their steps. At times, they're a miscuse, say a slap to the back that leaves a welt. But that's merely part of the live-action extravaganza. Come on in, the water's fine. When William's hand smacked Kimberly's back, the 170 fans drew a sharp, collective breath. She was a crowd favorite, the prodigal daughter returning. The masses were on her side, and so they responded in the only way that felt right. They gasped, then they booed. But what if Kimberly hadn't been a crowd favorite, nor a prodigal daughter? What if they hadn't been moved by that fleet delivery of violence at all? Or what if they had been moved, but reveled in it? Before she drew adulation, Frankly faced a firestorm. Three years ago, she stepped into another Beyond Wrestling ring, this time in Providence, Rhode Island, against another intergender opponent. Chris Dickinson picked up a folding chair while Kimberly kneeled in front of him. Dickinson lunged back, seeking leverage, hoisted the chair over his head, then swung down, a wrecking ball set on demolition, crashing it over his skull. He picked up her limp body, swung her onto his back, took off on a run, Pazuzu bomb, then threw her to the ground. She skidded toward the turnbuckle, a collection of beaten bones more than a whole body, and a fan in Providence that night captured the mauling on video. The blowback was swift, and it was unrelenting. Angry viewers called the venue, then the city. Dickinson lost bookings and gained death threats. Fellow wrestlers joined the lynch mob, too. Guys that I trained with were like, oh, you're going to wrestle that Dickinson guy, Matt Riddle says? Try to hurt him. Frankly, for her part, was floored. I was 100% fine. Neither of us had any idea it would go viral, she says. We got to the back and it's, oh my gosh, that was amazing. Thank you for taking care of me, she remembers telling Dickinson. And that Pazuzu bomb? She and Dickinson had wanted to push the boundaries even further. A power bomb from the top rope. A notion that Drew Cordero, Beyond Wrestling's owner, vetoed immediately. Absolutely not, he told them. Way too dangerous. The chorus was unswayed. At best, it insisted intergender wrestling normalizes domestic violence. At worst, it glorifies it. The optics, after all, are shocking. A petite wrestler such as Kimberly doesn't just fly through the air. They rock it. Against Dickinson, her head looked ram into the ring bell, though Sheen Cordero insisted it didn't. Independent wrestling venues are small and private, and the events they house feel fringe by extension, illicit even. And Beyond Wrestling's calling card as a promotion is an audience unrestrained by guardrails, so the fans are flush against the ring with no barriers. What this moment looks like, then, is a furtive congregation of gawkers bearing witness to perhaps even sanctioning a man pummeling a woman. It's chilling. It's also incomplete. 
To label intergender wrestling and the brutality it portrays as domestic violence is to fundamentally misunderstand what domestic violence against men or women can look like. It's about a pattern of power and control, says Eric Olson, a deputy director at National Network to End Domestic Violence. It's physical violence. It's controlling their technology, controlling bank accounts, ruining credit. It's a much larger, complex picture. Weeks after Lit Up, Olson watched video of Kimberly wrestling Williams, took in the moments when Williams grabbed Kimberly by her hair, and when she retaliated with a kick to his jaw. I have watched, unfortunately, so many videos of violent acts being committed against individuals. Some of those have been in the context of domestic violence and a partner. Some have been stranger assaults, she says. This felt nothing at all like that for me. It was presented as performance, she says, and seemingly consumed like one. But even art can create permission structures. Why doesn't the show Brutality open the floodgates to a more permissive, forgiving climate for violence against women? Consent, frankly, says. She not only agreed to get in those rings with Dickinson and Williams, she did so because she trusts them. When you train as a professional wrestler, you learn the right ways to roll and to fall and to brace yourself against the ropes, and you learn how to protect the person who steps into the ring with you. We have to challenge ourselves to respect the fact that consenting to be in this profession does not open the door to allow anyone to be abusive to you in any other space of your life, Olson says. It's why Stephanie Bell, who is an intergender wrestler and a survivor of domestic violence, feels she can be both. Bell did not consent to physical abuse in her home, but she has consented to be in that ring, and she is exhaustively selective about who joins her there. It's not just men, it's everyone, says Bell, who wrestles under the alias Mia Yim. Who can I trust? Who's going to keep me safe? It is hard and it is complicated and it's fraught because two things can be true at once. It can be true that these women and men consent to be in a ring together and agree to inflict damage on one another's bodies. It can also be true that it is unsettling to see and hear it happen, especially with children looking on. Young people who are still forming their worldviews, especially with potential survivors of domestic violence looking on. People whose worldviews already know abuse. But the root of the conflict is that violence is not a bug in the professional wrestling ecosystem. It's the feature. Research does suggest that exposure to violence as a form of entertainment can desensitize us to it, says Anastasia Powell, an associate professor at RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia, whose area of study has focused on policy concerning violence against women. So there are some concerns to be had about entertainment that normalizes men's violence against women or displays it as not serious. But I think those same concerns apply to the glorification of men's violence against men. And so maybe the reckoning isn't whether intergender wrestling normalizes or glorifies violence against women. Perhaps the reckoning is that professional wrestling normalizes and glorifies violence. Period. In the middle of the afternoon, just a quarter after three o'clock, the crowd fidgets with anticipation and cold. The Mercedes-Benz Superdome is cavernous, and as the thermostat dips into the low 60s, the men and women, in roughly equal proportion, and children, thousands of them, lean forward, waiting for the show to start. Exactly 78,133 tickets were sold, and as Rusev Day chants ring out from the upper decks, the assembly feels charged, raucous. It's mostly dark, save for the towering, hundreds of feet high, fluorescent pink, orange, and green Mardi Gras mask at the top of a runway. There are no windows here, but if there were, the vista beyond would reveal a river of humanity flowing through the streets of New Orleans, spilling into the crevices and cracks of the city, making its way to this mecca. WrestleMania 34 might as well be the center of the universe. It's three days after lit up, in the same city but a world away, and the WWE's annual Super Bowl meets Papal Visit meets Comic-Con Spectacular is in full swing. The sheer size and scope of WrestleMania, it grossed $14.1 million this year and drew fans from every state in the country, sheds light on one basic truth. 
The WWE is so ubiquitous and takes up so much oxygen in the professional wrestling kingdom that until the organization embraces intergender wrestling, intergender wrestling will stay relegated to the fringes. There was a time when the WWE did not shrink from it. China was the first woman wrestler to enter the Royal Rumble in 1999. Lita and Jacqueline and Jazz, all prominent women wrestlers in the early 2000s, squared off against men in the ring. But when the organization ushered in its PG era in 2008, the mandate that came with its new family-friendly TV rating was clear. No bloodshed, less gratuitous violence, fewer edgy storylines. Intergender wrestling, not welcome in this newly sanitized WWE. The thing that's troubling to me, says Beyond Wrestling's Cordero, is intergender wrestling shouldn't be inconsistent with the PG era. He chose WrestleMania weekend to host the promotion's first on intergender card because on the biggest wrestling weekend of the year, he knew it would be a special attraction, and by extension, an opportunity to showcase intergender wrestling with the nuanced consideration he thinks it should be afforded. Before Lit Up, Cordero sent a warning to all performers. Absolutely no sexist humor will be tolerated. He doesn't view intergender wrestling as spectacle or taboo. He doesn't want others to consume it that way either. Still, there are signs the WWE might yet come around to Cordero's doctrine, that the wall that presently divides the WWE and intergender wrestling might still crumble. WWE hopefuls have long feared that intergender experience would be a disqualifying mark on their resume, but Perazzo signed to the WWE in May with an intergender match, and before her, frankly, with a career full of such matches, signed too. And then there was the brief interlude, a full 60 seconds, when intergender wrestling returned to the biggest stage possible, WrestleMania in New Orleans. Just an hour and a half into the five-hour show, and 10 minutes into the night's most gripping match, Paul Triple H Levesque, WWE's sculpted, Hulk-shaped 14-time champion, throws Kurt Angle over the announcer's table. In his American flag singlet, Angle cuts a red, white, and blue flash to the air, while Triple H goes back into the ring to check on his real wife and mixed team tag partner, Stephanie McMahon. She's writhing on the mat, and just as she she's writhing on the mat, and just as he bends over, behind his back, someone steps into the ring. And the crowd loses its collective mind. Ronda Rousey waves her hands in a taunt towards Triple H. Come here, come get me. The UFC Hall of Fame champion doesn't want to fight Triple H. The UFC's Hall of Fame champion doesn't want to fight Triple H's tag partner. She wants to fight Triple H. For half a minute, Triple H puts her off. He stares her down. He scans the audience, the 78,133 fans who at this point have reached a shrieking boil. He smiles, then nods. It's an invitation. Rousey charges, and she's nothing but a flurry of punches and strikes, a tornado that leaves Triple H cowed in the corner. After the hailstorm, she turns around and beelines for the ropes. She slingshots off them to charge at Triple H again, block his kick. She slingshots off them to charge at Triple H again, Blocks his kick, throws him to the ground, then rolls over him, jumps to her feet, and lifts him over her shoulders. Perhaps it's the thawing of the ice. Last November, Becky Lynch took on James Ellsworth on SmackDown. Three months after WrestleMania, SmackDown would again feature Ellsworth in another intergender match on July 3rd, this time pitting him against Asuka. Perhaps it'll remain an anomaly. When discussing the state of intergender wrestling in the WWE, Levesque, the company's executive vice president, will downplay its viability. It's funny, people ask me about that all the time, about intergender wrestling, and I'm a proponent of it when it works, like Mixed Match Challenge or WrestleMania last year with us, he says. But I don't believe that it should be the norm. The women don't need a man in the ring with them to become a prime spot on the card. They don't need that to be the main event in WWE. They just need another woman in there that's as great as they are. For now, though, there's intergender wrestling in the sport's biggest stage, or at least a flirtation with intergender wrestling. When Asuka and Ellsworth meet on July 3rd, 
and then battle again a week later in a rematch. The shows prove more farce than physical feat. The first ends in a double count when Ellsworth flees and Asuka chases him over the barricade. The second sees Asuka make quick work of a comically overpowered Ellsworth. Much like last November versus Lynch, the physical mismatch is presented as much, if not more, about Ezler Els. Much like November versus Lynch. Oh, jeez. Much like last November versus Lynch, the physical mismatch is presented as much, if not more, about Ellsworth's failings as an athlete as it is Asuka's prowess. Frankly, isn't watching on July 3rd, nor a week later for the sequel. She was released from the WWE in March. She says the WWE didn't provide much explanation, just told her to, just told her to keep working hard, and she doesn't keep close tabs now that she's on the outside looking in. But she catches wind of the match online, and it leaves her cold. Yes, it's cool that they're making the woman look like somebody who could be that intimidating, she says. But for someone like me, who works places where you see full-length matches of women really given time and a chance to put in some effort, it's a little disappointing. It's one of those things where you're just like, oh, yay, then you're kind, then you're like, oh, kind of not yay. Still, intergender wrestling remains the biggest cause of her career, frankly says. Maybe the reason everything lined up in the universe like this is because I'm supposed to go out there and make intergender and even bigger things, she says. And I'm going to come back and be one of the people that wrestles the dudes in WWE. Never say never. Joining me now is ESPN staff writer Hallie Grossman. Hallie, thank you for being here again. Thanks for having me back. A repeat customer. Oh, yeah. So this, to me, was a very fascinating story because it seemed like it was part a story about equality, but part about just people trying to achieve their dreams. And so I guess the first question I have for you, are these wrestlers, the men and women that participate in these intergender matches, are they out there like, no, I'm trying to achieve some sort of equality, or are they not thinking about it? Their first and foremost is, I just want to get paid to do what I love to do. I think it's that, right? Uh, You know, there's so much sacrifice behind the scenes with these wrestlers, so much work and personal dedication that goes into doing this weekend in and weekend out. You know, take WrestleMania weekend, which was back in April in New Orleans, and that was when I shadowed Kim. Uh, We caravanned from Orlando, which is where she was living at the time with her boyfriend, who is also a wrestler on the independent circuit. Um, That was a Thursday. We left at about 9 in the morning. We made the 10-hour drive, 9.5, 10-hour drive from Orlando to New Orleans. Um, and we went straight to the arena where the show she was performing in that night called Lit Up was taking place. And so the show started at midnight. Um, it went until 3 a.m. She said she then spent the next hour to two hours after the show ended selling merchandise, um, selling her own merchandise at the arena. Um, they went back to the hotel. They got about three or four hours of sleep and then they started all over again right away the next morning. They went back to the arena because her boyfriend had a show he was performing in. Um, that was Friday. And then by Saturday, Kim had two more wrestling matches, once one time in the morning and then again in the afternoon. And so, you know, WrestleMania is the busiest, the biggest wrestling weekend of mm-hmm. the year. But that sort of gives you an idea of just sort of the personal dedication it takes to do this, you know, to the level at the level that they do it. Um, and you know, it's not a glamorous gig, right? Like I we we drove from Florida to New to Louisiana. Um, she made her own way. Um, and you know, wrestlers, they have like their, their existence is so nomadic, at least on the inter- independent circuit. Um, they have their own language, right? So there's when they pile into the car and it's four or five of them in a car and they each have their own carry on. They have one piece of luggage, right? There's a lot of people. It's a lot sure. of stuff to fit into a car. And so they sort of like before they get off on their road trip, they sort of jostle all their luggage into the, into the trunk and they, 
position it and they, and they reposition it and they call it Tetris because <laughs> they're trying to make sure everything so fits. Just and, like Tetris. Yeah. Um, and so they have this, like, there's this own very unique existence, their own language, their own sort of nomadic existence to make it work because they love it. Um, and you know, and you get to the arena and again, not a glamorous place to be. They sort of, they get to the arena, maybe it's an hour, maybe it's two hours before the show. Um, and they sort of crowd into this very, sparse this very tiny bare bones hallway um and that's where they meet with their opponents and they will sort of gather together and they'll sort of talk about what they want to do for that particular match and then they go and they get dressed they do their own makeup it's very down and dirty right Mm -hmm. um and that's just again because they they want to be out there doing this um and they're just responsible for everything they're just sort of these one-stop shops right so kim if they want to wear a particular costume she gets that made if mm-hmm. she wants to have merchandise to sell with her likeness on it, she finds the manufacturers to get it produced. Like if she wants to market that merchandise, she's the one who markets it. Mm-hmm. Um, so from top to bottom, it's just a lot of work and dedication and drive to to do this. So when you say the indie circuit, does that just mean it's just from arena to arena, no television, so, no web exposure, nothing? It's just like sort of you have to know what's going on to sort of – Sort of, it's really, so with professional wrestling, if you ask any professional wrestling fan, even a self-avowed huge wrestling fan, what they're going to be able to tell you exists in the professional wrestling world is the WWE, Mm -hmm. like, right? Like that has the name recognition. That's the one that everybody knows. But even self-avowed fans of professional wrestling don't always know that there's just an entire independent network of of promotion. So there's Beyond Wrestling, which is the one that hosted this particular show in New Orleans. But there's there are promotions like that all over and they just host these they're you know, they're smaller entities. Like in the story we mentioned that it's it's a big arena. It was it's mm-hmm. a really convention center. It's a big ballroom that can house a lot of people. Um but you know, it was a crowd it, they sold three hundred tickets, about hundred and seventy shows, so it's a smaller, more intimate setting. Sure. Um and that's true, you know, of almost every independent promotion. Well, it's, it's interesting that when you said, you, know, you mentioned very vividly to set the scene of what time this was at. Yes. It seems that they're almost working against each other. I mean, I guess it's people when they can get the building at the mm-hmm. rate that they can afford. But it's interesting, like, how are you, what fans are you hoping to attract or can you attract if you don't start until midnight? Right. Well, this one, they're not always at midnight, right? This one was unique. Um, okay. And again, partly it was because it was WrestleMania weekend. So they are, they're just from the time you wake up until the time you go to bed uh, that weekend, there are just wrestling shows back to back to back to back. Mm-hmm. And so people have, you know, the city was just flooded with WWE fans and mm-hmm. they're there and they make a weekend of it. And so before the Sunday event, they're going to all these shows. Um, so it was a little bit, at least that weekend about finding the right time slot. Um, that's, you know, finding a time slot period, which is how Beyond Wrestling uh, landed at, you know, midnight on a Thursday night. I don't think that would necessarily be their top choice right. um, if they had to do it again. But, you know. Is there, uh, what is the fan demand for intergender wrestling? Like, is it sort of like, like how these are all, as you mentioned, like they're telling stories? Yes. So is it like any movie, meaning that if the story is compelling, like sign me up? Like they'll be there, like they'll come to it. Yeah. So it's, you know, what that was something I didn't really necessarily know going into it, but it's a very, they have very devoted fan bases. So they might not be the thousands that flock to in New Orleans on WrestleMania weekend, but mm-hmm. they had people. So Beyond Wrestling is a promotion. It's based, I believe, in Rhode Island. And they had people who 
go there weekend in and weekend out and are going to the shows in in Rhode Island and they had people sort of caravan down and go to New Orleans and and view the shows that they were putting on there and you know the the MC during the event like many times they call it the Beyond Wrestling family and so it is it becomes this very like family oriented that sounds odd to say I guess in this setting but it is sure. it's very um, seeing people that you see at shows in like you know at all the time and. Um, it becomes this very family dedicated set of um, fans who come to these shows. Uh, yeah. So, and while they are telling these stories, and you know, as we said, it's a scripted performance. Yes. Even though there's a lot of athleticism involved, what you see on the surface is still clearly like a, a confrontation in violence. And there was some really great moments in your piece where you discuss, you know, the word choice. And mm-hmm. there was a choice for these women to participate and they know that they're safe because of how hard they've trained with these people. Yes. And, uh, and that it's people when they just instantly bring up domestic violence, they don't realize, as you point out with some of the experts you cite that it's control. Control is what is lost in domestic violence. But as far as the empowerment side of it, how, um, how do you feel like through this, these performances like that below the surface empowerment can come through, can shine through? Well, there's a couple of things, right? I want to go back to a couple of things you said earlier, which is the consent first. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think having the opportunity to go backstage at Lit Up was a really revealing sort of eye-opening experience for me because there was just so much to the process, like so much to how the sausage gets made that I just mm-hmm. didn't know. And that really informed how I then sort of digested and consumed it um, as an event. Um, and so I mentioned that they get to the arena maybe an hour, maybe two hours, maybe less than an hour before the performance and before the show, and they sort of congregate, right? So they go two by two, they get up with their opponent, and they will literally, in this in this very crammed hallway, this very, they're packed in like sardines, they will sort of map out how they want their match to go. Mm-hmm. Now that starts with, you know, deciding on a storyline, deciding on a plot line that they want to sort of pursue in the match that then moves on to the specific moves that they want to make and the and execute and the sequence in which those moves will take place. And it's just this very specific agreed upon process. Mm-hmm. And um, but even the unpredictable is like sort of okay like while that like the big like you have if you look at the this piece online the big handprint Right. Even that moment, while not scripted in the moments you're talking about behind the scenes, that's still like, okay, that was still okay because that's still part of what we're doing. I would have done that too. Yes, because and it's because they've established that trust, right? So yes. during, before, this wasn't actually during Lit Up. It was before another show that she had that weekend. But I heard her say to her opponent, they were in another hallway getting mm-hmm. ready for another show. And what they were practicing and what she said to her opponent was, I trust you. I trust you to catch me. And it's that element. Like they've established this trust. They've established this, mm-hmm. this comfort level. And so, and then after the show, they reconvene, right? And so they, Kim steps through the curtain. There's this big, like thick black curtain that separates the audience from the, from the backstage. And she mm-hmm. walks backstage. And the first thing she does is find Tracy Williams. That's her opponent. It lit up. And they talk about it. They talk about, first of all, the first thing they do is they, they make sure nobody's hurt. They mm-hmm. make sure that they feel that they feel good about how the match went. They talk about what worked, what didn't work. And then they talk about, you know, the choices they made because it is scripted to a certain extent, but it's also a live performance. So right. it's like live TV. Things happen, right? Um, unexpected things happen. And so in that particular match, for example, 
Tracy explained what happened with the backslap because mm-hmm. that wasn't pre-planned. That was right. something that just sort of happened spur of moment. And like you said, he just sort of explained like, look, your back was open. It was an opportunity. I took it. And because that mutual trust and comfort had already been established, one, because they knew each other just from previous mm-hmm. ex- you know, experiences and same shows and they trained with the same person, um, but because that they had sort of talked it through. Um, and that really sort of um, crystallized for me the way that what Kim talks about a lot, which is the fact that she has consented to be in that ring with Tracy, who mm-hmm. is a wrestler, who is a man, and she has consented to be um, or to perform the moves that they've agreed upon. Um, and it's really critical because like, she has consented to physical violence nowhere else in no other space of her life, right? Mm-hmm. Like strictly in this ring. But that's important. Mm. Are there any ways that that you can see or that they mentioned that the people that you spoke to mentioned to you for these matches to win over any critics, or is it either that you've always liked wrestling or you don't just like some people love to go to Disney world or they don't. Yeah. I, you know, Kim will tell you that she gets both sides of it, right? So she's Mm -hmm. very active on Twitter and she'll hear from parents of small children who find what she does really empowering because Mm -hmm. her, we mentioned it in the story, but her catchphrase is she's the princess who will save herself. So there is this empowerment message and she will hear from fans she will hear from parents of fans who find that to be a valuable message she will also hear from the total opposite side of the spectrum you know people who are saying she's ruining the sport who she's you know she's helping to create a permissive you know environment for violence against women so she'll, she will hear both um and you know it's hard to change a person's mind especially about something as complicated as this because it is complicated um but i think honestly Having had, if they could go behind the curtain like I did, like that mm-hmm. actually might help inform how you sort of view how you feel about it just because you, you know, you don't get to see when you're on the other side of the curtain, you don't see them agreeing upon the moves. You don't see the fact that Kim is saying, yes, I trust you. Like I've learned how to do this. I've learned how to protect you. I know you've learned how to protect me. And that goes a long way in terms of understanding what ultimately goes on in the ring. It almost seems that, well, that exactly what you're talking about behind that black curtain mm-hmm. would be the equivalent of a magician going, this is exactly how I did that trick. Yes. It seems it goes against it. But since this is sort of the opposite of what people have been so used to, like to your point, it almost seems like that's exactly why they should show it. Yeah. And it's funny, you know, I would say the wrestlers and the, the promoters are a little hesitant, not a little, a lot hesitant to sort of pull back that curtain Mm -hmm. because they do, they view it as a show. They, you know, it's, we talked about it earlier a little bit, but it's much, it feels much more like going to a movie rather than a football game. And then Mm -hmm. it's, and that's not because it doesn't require athleticism or, you know, like physical skill. It does. It's that it requires a suspension of disbelief on the part of the audience. Right. Um, and that's different. Like, it's more like going to a movie, a Broadway show, a play. Um, and they want to they want to maintain that, like, fourth wall almost, right? You know, yeah. want to break the yeah. wall. Um, and But in my mind, it would actually, I think, probably go a long way in... Um, you're not going to win over everybody, um, but I think it might actually really make people who might have some reservations, who might feel a little bit uncomfortable with the product that they're putting out, actually sort of understand it in a new way. Well, yeah. I mean, it's just sort of like how, like like I said, with Disney World, when you go to, it's also, 
they consider their rides like stories. Like when you start to walk mm-hmm. into Pirates of the Caribbean, they want you to suspend disbelief and be part of, you know, I'm buying mm-hmm. what you're selling as well. And I now believe it's the 1700s <laughs> and I am in, you know, the Caribbean. And it's the same thing. They would never want to show you how complex it is to make that happen. Right. Because just like with these matches, like it, you could then apply that, oh, okay, I get it now to everything else. It's almost like you right. pull the the bottom of the Jenga and it would just come collapsing right. down. But by the same token, it's interesting, right? Because they will also in the same breath admit to the fact that the audience is in on the joke. Yes. You know, that they understand what they, it's almost like this contract that they sign non-verbally. You know, mm-hmm. Sure. Um, well, yeah. But it's just understood that they know what they're, they're coming in to see. Right. Well, I mean, well, I mean, you root for Rocky and you're nervous when he's getting beat up. <laughs> yes. And, you know, you feel tension in a World War II movie or you feel tension at the end of Rudy. What's going to happen? Even though the last two, historically, you could probably just figure it out pretty quickly. (laughs) But there also seems to be like another, a little cultural hypocrisy going on here where, you know, we have so many of them. Like you can be 15 and play professional tennis. But if you were 15 and said, I'm going to play in the NBA, like the Internet would melt. Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can be Tom Cruise and be lauded for doing your own stunts and then breaking a limb on the set of your last movie. But you aren't afforded the same regard if you do this in a wrestling ring, not at least not by the mainstream public, because, like, how can you get hurt if it's not real? Like, you know, I'm pretty sure okay. Tom Cruise actually is not a secret agent who needs to jump from buildings. Right. So it's almost like, well, you weren't really doing your job well then, I guess. It, it's almost, you know, it seems to be that there is, like, hypocrisy in how... The approach, the mental approach to that is almost like similar situations, but complete different approaches. Yeah. And it is, it's just an interesting parallel anyway, because like we talked about, like wrestlers themselves will call themselves stunt athletes, that they're doing live action theater. Um, and, you know, Kim, for example, really balks, as all wrestlers do, I think, at the idea of wrestling, professional wrestling as a fake enterprise. Like one mm-hmm. of the first things she said to me when we got on the road from Orlando was like, I hate that word. I hate the word fake. Because look, she's really slamming into the concrete. She's really banging against those ropes. Right. You know, the bruises she gets are real. And I was there having witnessed it firsthand. Like when Williams, her opponent slapped her back, like you could hear it the moment it happened. It was sure. just this huge reverberating smack. And it popped up like the handprint, it was so bright red and so sort of etched into her skin. It looked like it could have mm-hmm. been a tattoo. Um, and that happened immediately. And then I saw her two days later for her second, like, you know, sort of set of shows. And it was still there, still just as bright, still just as red. And, you know, that sort of sealed it for me. You know, it was like, yes, it's scripted. Yes, a lot of this is sort of pre-planned. But, like, it's also really real in a lot of ways. Well, no, I mean, it would be at the... You know, the Emmy Awards, they said, you know, best fake funny show, best fake dramatic show. Yeah. I mean, like the word yeah. fake has, I mean, they're clear, they're all fake. Right. They're all made up. Sure. But um, but when you talk about the branding and like moving towards acceptance and, mm-hmm. you know, in today's world, like f- how many followers do you have and like building a brand mm-hmm. is like what is like how to build a business in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. How important is it in you said a great scene with uh, Triple H. How important to the, f- the the success of future intergender gender wrestling is the arrival of Ronda Rousey mm. and like what she brings from, you know, the MMA world where right. that was nothing fake about that. Well, and so I had this conversation with another promoter um, of an independent wrestling promotion and he had, you know, he was talking about 
we had I just gotten back from New Orleans and there was just this like first of all obviously because of her name and because of her recognition that match the tag team match between her and Triple H and Stephanie McMahon like that was just the peak of sort of excitement at the at, at WrestleMania and mm-hmm. that that one minute where Triple H and Ronda Rousey actually get into the ring together and she picks him up on his shoulders like that was absolutely the sort of peak of frenzy mm-hmm. um, just having been there in person. And, you know, part of me was like, wow, well, maybe this is really like a sign of things to come. Maybe like there are sort of like more willing to sort of step back into that intergender pool because for so long they haven't been. There's just Mm -hmm. been this very clear line of we're not going to do it. We're not going to go there, um, at least in any serious, real way. And what he said was like, well, look, like if you're going to do it, who better to do it with than Ronda Rousey? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because like there's believability there that yeah she can handle male opponents you know right. she's she's been a champion what six times over in the ufc like yeah. for a while she was the best woman on the planet you know um and so it's a pretty as far as getting back into that intergender space a little bit like she's a pretty safe way to do it um now i don't know that that means that they will you know either mm-hmm. paul Vec talks about it in the story a little bit there's just a, a pretty there's a lot of hesitation to actually make it um, just a bigger part of what they do. There's still very clear um, reluctance to do that. Now, these wrestlers on the independent circuits, the one that the ones that um, that are in the uh, the independent wrestlers in the intergender matches. Mm-hmm. In the end, do they all sort of want the same thing? Like this is in like they don't really like as we let off with like they don't really care what who. Like I just want to get paid to do what I love is the goal to basically make it to the WWE and, like, be on top and be a star? Yeah. I mean, look, it's, like, the major leagues of their particular, you know, endeavor. Um, So I don't, you know, I think everybody wants that. You Mm -hmm. want to get to the top of your sport. If it's NBA, you know, basketball, you want to get to the NBA. If you have football, you want to get to the NFL. Like, that's just sort of a natural inclination. Um, So, yeah, I think, you know, Kim was in the, the WWE for about a year. She was let go in March. Um, but that was the pinnacle for her. That sure. was what she had been working for. For you know, she's been doing this since 2009. That was what she was. That's her dream. Um, and I, you know, I think she wants to get back there one day if she can. Um, but you know, they also it's they also love what they're doing in terms of the the independent scene as well. Yeah, but but also, but I guess the question, my next question or my last question for you <laughs> would, would sort of be, is it like how if you are a classically trained actor mm-hmm. and you study in Europe and you study in England and you know all the Shakespeare in the world, but you're offered the brass ring to be like the wacky neighbor on like an Emmy award winning comedy. Like, is it like, would they want to be like you? Here's the thing. We're going to bring it back on WWE and you can only really, you're going to be the intergender champion. Like, are, are they all on board? Like, I don't care what, like I'll go in with that or they're, I think so. Yeah. I mean, like, look, Kim has talked about intergender wrestling being sort of a, the hallmark cause of her career. Like she mm-hmm. wants, you know, whether she will be able to bring everyone to her side, probably not. But she wants to sort of fight for that and make it a bigger thing. Um, but and, you know, the story ends with her sort of musing on like being able to bring it to the WWE one day and sort of she maybe one day she can be the person to sort of fight the dudes and to use her words and um, yeah, so I think it's uh, that would be a dream of hers too. And how about 
And how about the, the men that you've met on those circuits? Like, I guess, what level of respect do they have for the women that they're wrestling against? Oh, I think they have a tremendous uh, level of respect. Look, not every wrestler who is a man on the independent circuit is going to feel comfortable getting mm-hmm. into the ring with a woman. That's just a fact. Um, you know, and there was a, there's a scene in this story, um, Kim had a very sort of, it went viral, it was this very violent, um, match that she went against a wrestler named Chris Dickinson and it sort of took off and to the point where other wrestlers, like there was a wrestler at Lit Up named Matt Riddle, Mm -hmm. who he heard from other wrestlers when he was going against Chris later on was like, oh, that's the guy from that video, like hurt him. And, you know, so there is, there's. There's definitely resistance still, even among wrestlers, to sort of jump into that intergender space. But for those who are willing to do it, I think that there's a lot of mutual respect, right? And it's not – they want to – they're very clear on the fact that, like, look, a, you know, 6'2 man going against a 5'1 woman, Mm -hmm. they have to sort of make space for the reality that, like, she's not going to outmuscle him. She's not going to necessarily overpower him. But Kim has flexibility that her opponent probably doesn't. She mm-hmm. has speed that she that he probably doesn't to get out of submission holds, things like that. And so it's about sort of maximizing what you do bring to the table. And they and both the men and the women who partake in intergender wrestling are really um, attuned to that. Well, it was an amazing look, an amazing story. I uh, will definitely be following this to see where this goes in the future. <laughs> but uh, Hallie, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Remember to subscribe to Double Truck Stories Podcast on the ESPN app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again, and we'll be back soon with more Double Truck Stories Podcasts.